And just for a change, that was The Smiths with the track Sheila Takes a Bow from the album Louder Than Bombs. I'm David Eastall. This is The C86th Show. Welcome once again to another thrilling ride of life as I'll be bringing you songs you know, some you don't and some you should. Always playing the finest in indie pop. As you know, I love a special guest. This week it is going to be Colin Gregory from 1000 Violins. So expect one of the greatest rock and indie stories of all time alongside the usual award-worthy playlist. But to get the party going, I think we should play your favourite and mine. This is 1000 Violins and Halcyon Days.
That's 1,000 Violins and the track titled Halcyon Days. Hello, this is David Eastall, The C86 Show. A little bit later on, I will tell you how you can contact me because um, it's always nice to have your messages. Anyway, I caught up with the guitarist and one of the main singer-songwriters of the band, Colin Gregory, um, a couple of weeks ago to find out more about what life was like in an indie band all the way from Sheffield. Though it did um, gather that they spent most of their time down in London as well, staying with the one and only Dan Tracy. And I have to say, this is one of the great interviews of my time. So I, um, I won't talk too much more, but I'll play one more track by the band and then the first part of this interview. Um, this is another single, and this is the, um, well, this is the track that's titled Like 1000 Violins. That came out in 1985 on DreamWork Records. No, DreamWorld Records. <laughs> Thank you. 
There you go, pop perfection. That was uh, 1000 Violins with a track titled Like 1000 Violins. And that came from a, well, probably several com- uh, collections and albums. But um, in 2014, Cherry Red Records, yes, the famous Cherry Red, brought out Halcyon Days, which was the complete recordings from 1985 to 1987. Two years, but they produced so much stuff. Um, so it's uh, also features on there. So if you're one of those dedicated music fans who just stick with the, with the best of, then, you know, I don't blame you at times. But, um, you know, it goes down badly at parties. But anyway, look, this is David Esau. This is the C86 show. And this is going to be the first part of my interview with Colin Gregory from the band as uh, we talk about the early years of um, 1000 Violins and um, basically how it all came together. And this was Colin's answer or reply. Colin, take it away. What we lived, me and my friend called David, we lived in a place called Brig House in West Yorkshire. And we used to... Um, go to my where my dad worked in the summer holidays and help clean the factory of all the toxic chemicals. And then we earned a bit of money. Then we would take our money and we would go down Economy Street uh, for the weekend and just hang around our Economy Street buying clothes and listening to records we'd never heard before. And while we were down there, for the first time ever, we heard the Velvet Underground just in a shop. And I asked the guy, who's this, who's this? And he told us. And uh, he said, I know something else you might like. And he gave us one of Dan Tracy's records. You know Dan? Yes. The television personalities. <clears throat> we, we, we thought, wow, this is fantastic. And uh, so we sent him a tape because we just we did, just did a bit of music. And he, he liked it. And he called us and we went to see him. And uh, then we stayed with him for a good few years. And those were the days... So we, we we kind of moved down to London and slept on his floor um, in uh, kind of where he lived. Yes. Anyway, so we, so we slept on his floor and various people have come down around the time. You know, you get the mighty lemon drops going around there. You get uh, soup dragons coming down, the early primal screams, sort of people coming down, sleeping on his floor. And so everybody kind of knew Dan. Uh, but Dan would always stay in his bedroom and never come out. <laughs> <laughs> it was great looking back it was bonkers but yeah, yeah so, so Dan like... would be in his bedroom we'd be in the other we'd be in the other room smoking away with his with his friends and uh, shouting through the door Dan Dan, Dan. and yeah idea when the record's coming out Dan what are you doing in there Dan he'd shout through the door and every now and then he'd come out and then he'd arrange anyway he'd arrange loads of gigs and we'd just go down and play the gigs we'd play the so many places that the one called the living room and uh, Alan McGee. I think that was Alan McGee's first club in London. Yes, that's right. And, <clears throat> and he he was there, and a guy called the Legend was there. Guy, guys from a band called Mood Six. Have you heard of Mood Six? Yes. They were that Tony from Mood Six. They were all nice guys. And then loads of loads of these psychedelic types from the Times. They were all there. The, t- uh, the times they were there. Yes, and, and it was a brilliant, brilliant, fun time. We all had a real good laugh, and we just played any gig that Dan got us. We played. Dan played with us. We played with Dan. He used to just draw the the, the flyers and stick them up, and people would come. Mm. We got loads of friends doing that. Uh, yeah, and so uh, so I, just going back slightly, did you when you obviously were getting getting your sort of hip and groovy record collection together did you were you still were you actually at that point making music as well um, oh yeah yeah we that's that's what that's what we sent him the demo tape and that's what we signed to his little label dream world it was called wham records originally yeah. and then, then wham wham the band got upset about it and he had a little thing going with wham they paid him off to change the name so he changed his name to dream world right because i think they they had two a's in wham didn't they and they did, yeah. The, the, the Liechtenstein wham he had, yeah. Yes. But uh, they thought it might be, I don't know why they ever thought there'd be any confusion. But, <laughs> but anyway, yes. they did. So, the, so at this point, you were the five piece with Darren Collin, yourself, John, David, and Peter. Yeah, basically, I mean, it was, it, yeah, it was only ever really me and David. It was me and David. It was our, our scene. We just did what we did. And uh, at various, we, we had just had a drum machine. The main, the main band was me and David. We, we, I had a friend who owned a studio. We went down and recorded some songs at his studio in somewhere near Birmingham, Stourbridge. And uh, he was having a guy sing on some of his songs. That was John. We heard his voice and went, "Hi, oh, great to hear him sing some of our songs." 
So we called him up, he came down, sang, we went, yeah, that's great. Do you want to join the band? And he went, yeah, as you do. He, he joined the band. That was John and uh, our friend from from way back in Brickhouse, Peter, he was a drummer. He loved Keith Moon and he was crazy uh, himself. So the four of us, before day, uh, Peter joined, we just used a drum machine and it was basically me, David and John. And anybody else that joined just joined in. Right, that was joined in and left, and joined in and left. The first peel session we did, we did, we did with a drum machine. Yeah, it's good. There weren't that many at the time. Well, on the indie world, I know there was bizarrely the Farmers Boys, and then decades or a year later, or years later, was the Carter and the Unstoppable yeah. Sex Machine. So, so the drum machine was still a bit sort of hit and miss, really, wasn't it? And often, yeah. Well, we, we tried to use a drum machine like a drummer because we liked drummers, and uh, people kind of liked the fact that we did this crappy drum machine programming <laughs> trying to make a drum roll like a drummer would do and so uh, it was uh, probably a bit of a novelty yes but yeah we, so we were well, we always wanted to drummer but you know we didn't know any drummers uh, anyway so we used to hang around in london uh, so we never had anything to do with sheffield we just lived in sheffield right but we were always always in london or played gigs in scotland because all there was a lot of scottish guys that we got on really well with stuart Stuart, there's a guy called Paul Misery, called himself Misery Guts, and Stuart <laughs> Cant. Paul does a does a little uh, Facebook page uh, for us or for for that band. Yes. And Stuart Stuart always came down, and stayed with us, and we got on really well with those guys. So we always stayed with them. We went to Scotland, so we'd either play in Scotland or play in London. But uh, in Sheffield, we, no one knew who we were. And, Right. It was more of a question of where do you live? Oh, we live in Sheffield, but we didn't have anything to do with Sheffield. Yes, and obviously the Dan Tracy, which I'm still quite boggled by by that story, because that's probably the first time I've ever heard anything like it, that you had some sort of indie uh, B&B. Uh, yes. It was, yeah, it was great. <laughs> what a place that so, was so how long did that scene last for with, you know, on the Dan Tracy, you know, with him the other side in his bedroom sort of shouting the instructions back? About three, three or four years. right. God, that's fantastic! That sounds like kind of one of those eccentric kind of geniuses. You know, you know, it, it was like that. It re- looking back, it, it gets more and more crazy. But when you when you're there, you just, it's just what you're doing. But looking back on it, it was it was it was mad because Dan was a real big psychedelia fan, as you probably know, uh, Pink Floyd and all that sort of thing, and that that's what he liked. And um, and uh, he was a delicate soul. And, yes. uh, and he was, uh, I mean, I don't know what, you, he's probably bipolar or these days he would be identified as something like that. But he was, anyway, bonkers. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, of, of all industries to go into, the music one is not good for your mental health, is it, at the best of time? No, no. So, no. so well, I think, I think, I think so, you liked a pint, pint of sherry as well. And that is the first part of my interview with Colin Gregory from 1000 Violins. And I've still got several bits of that interview to come. If you want to contact me, we always love your messages. You can via Facebook or Twitter. Just go to at C86show and I will be there. And it's always good as long as it's um, constructive and groovy. Otherwise, I don't know, go and see a therapist. So we need more music. This is going to be another track. uh, Well, this is from their first album, which was titled Please Don't Sandblast My House. This is the song titled To Make Your Tea. Take it away.
Sheffield's finest 1,000 1000 violins and that's a track titled To Make Your Tea and that uh, came from their album titled Please Don't Sandblast My House. This is going to be the second part of my interview with Colin Gregory from the band where um, actually I was still a little bit uh, fixated on this relationship with Dan Tracy because during the 80s we all sort of lived with some peculiar people. Not only was it all... You know, Barley Cup and um, TVP and talking about Red Wedge and getting all excited about the Socialist Workers' Party. But um, yes, living with people that you realise you shouldn't have shared a house with is always one of those things. It's a learning curve. Anyway, this is where I asked Colin about um, what happened when he met Dan, actually at a gig and not just talking through a bedroom door. And this was his reply. Colin, take it away. Yeah, well, he loved us and we loved him and we just kind of let him be who he wanted to be and, and and he was always like, hey, hello, hello. Hey. <laughs> we'd go, hey, Dan, you all right, Dan? How are you? We were just kids. You all right, Dan? You all right, Dan? What's happening, Dan? He'd go, yeah, yeah, all right, all right, all right, yeah. It was, it was obviously brained all day long. So <laughs> <laughs> that didn't help. It was, a, it was crazy. We lived with it. We lived or we slept. We'd go down there and just sleep on his floor for a week and, and you wouldn't really see him. You'd see his girlfriend. It was great, right? Laugh. But he, he'd just never be there. But if you saw him wandering about, he'd go, hey, you're all right, you're all right. <laughs> and he'd be back in his room doing whatever he was doing. 
Blimey, that is that, that is, just that was just the way life was. That was that was so eighties, wasn't it? I mean, we it was you know, yeah, yeah. It was like one of those things because it was a period, obviously, at that time as well. Was there there was a huge amount of political strife going on, and people were in different gangs, and there was the red wedge and the sort of rock against yeah. racism and and all that kind of world as well. And obviously, we we had John Peel, which was was a fantastic beacon that kind of held it all together in a weird and wonderful way. Yeah, I think Dan was just bothered about the drugs. Uh, that stayed in the bedroom. <laughs> yes, but at the same <laughs> and time, so and so at the same time, you were sort of still on his record label for quite a few years. Basically, the du- almost the duration of the band. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh well, you know, same as Dan. Dan really, we were just bothered about smoking, <laughs> smoking and playing gigs and drinking, and um, you kind of just get into a a routine, don't you? Yeah. So we we'd come up to Sheffield. Uh, messed about. Um, that was all we did. Go down to London, stay at Dan's, play a few gigs, go to Scotland, play a few gigs. That was it. Building little stories up and having a great time, being kids, doing what you want to do. I don't think people, kids can do, do it, do it like that. You know, you, you could be on the dole and then you could just report to them how much you earned for your gig and they were quite happy for you to do that. So it, uh, things were free and easy. Yes, well, this is the thing that virtually everybody I speak to mentions, the importance of the unemployment benefit. And if anybody got right, that yeah, um, yeah. job seeking, is it job seeking or enterprise allowance? I mean, that seemed to be the other fantastic scheme that uh, yeah. dear old um, Margaret and the Conservatives had uh, introduced, which, which yeah. though everyone was cynical, was, was an absolutely brilliant time for the creative industries because cause it, it allowed was, everybody yeah. to sort of think, right, we've got, an, uh, you know, I can call myself whatever, a musician or writer, poet, you know, etc., and um, have that year of just absolutely carefree creativity. And most people seem to actually want to do something within that year and, and sort of, in a bizarre way, made some amazing music. And that was that was a really great, you know, I, I, I totally understand that, that, that times change, but, but at that time it was fantastic and that's why music was, there was so much music about. Because everybody, if you wanted to do music, you could do music and you could still survive. These days, I don't know how people survive and do music because they've got to earn or they can't do it, whereas we got supported, which was great. It was like sort of one of those schemes that the people talk about, everyone having a basic income and then yeah. Yeah, and then sort of you'd have that kind of safety net. But that's a different subject altogether. So yeah. look, with the, with, with the band, obviously, and this is quite a fantastic setup, most bands that I interview, you know, they have that five-year narrative. They get together, they make a bit of a sound. John Peel plays a single, which gives them that oomph and they get them to play in a bit of a bigger audience. A John Peel session and then the album. Um, and normally around the second, third album, and if anybody ever does a, an American tour, things go slightly badly so how did the narrative of, of the band go for you uh, well you know it's, it's, it's a, I, don't, I don't i don't know if we, we inhabited the same vortex as everybody else we we knew in Sheffield, we knew we knew a load of ex kind of heroin addicts uh, who used to come up to our house and we were we had like an open door because we had instruments and they liked playing music so we just hung out with them one of one of one of them joined the band, and uh, when we needed a spare bassist, and <laughs> funny thinking about it. Anyway, so people just used to come to our house, and they would just we would just play all day, and uh, just do anything we wanted to, just an- anarchistic nonsense, writing a couple of albums a day, madness. Uh, and uh, we had this I don't know this this crazy scene. And we didn't feel part of any other scene. We just happened to be alive at the same time. The, the, the guys that we knew in Sheffield, they, they probably they probably exist in every town, but uh, we just we um, we just hung out with the Hooverheads basically. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, well, actually, I've never come across any other, but, you know, most people did a bit of smoking and sort of drinking, but not sort of that much on the hard. We, we, we were managed, managed by a guy called Roger Holland, who who, who uh, worked for Sounds. Remember Sounds? Oh, yes. Sounds, Melody Maker and NME. They were yeah, like... he, he, worked, he was a writer for Sounds, and he used to follow us around. He loved us, and we used to hang around with him a lot. And uh, the guys that we, we did music with in Sheffield, we, we just used to write nonsense all the time, loads and loads and loads and loads of nonsense, and he loved it. So he, he wrote a, a fake review, a full full page review in, in, in sounds, called us the Surf Pistols, 
uh, said we were the next big, big thing, gave us a five-star review. <laughs> we didn't even exist. <laughs> and those were those times. <laughs> yes. Because it's, <laughs> cause it was interesting, because I know Lemmy from Motorhead, he was very wise in many ways. He said the one thing that he didn't touch was anything to do with heroin because that was like yeah. the big no but but you obviously this wasn't yeah. something that the band you you sort of jumped into that sort of world because mostly people took you know acid and and you know speed and yeah yeah smoked. we did as well we, we didn't take any heroin no we, we did we did all the other things but we used to know a lot of people that did and um they they because we had like an open house we, we didn't know anybody when we came to sheffield we just we just got to know people because we did music, and so they all descended upon us because we had a little recording set up, and, and they all wanted to play music. So we ended up starting bands with them. So we had bands with them at the same time as we had the other bands, and so we'd go and play anarchist discos in Sheffield, um, crazy, just crazy events that nobody nobody knew about, nobody nobody was aware of, nobody went to apart from crazy anarchists. Uh, and uh, that was our life. And then we'd go down, stay at Dan's and be the other band. Um, yeah. Yes. It was, uh, it was an odd odd time, but it was fantastic. It was fantastic fun. Yeah, it made me the person I am today. Indeed. And that is the second part of my interview with Colin Gregory from 1000 Violins. And um, I think we should play a bit more music and then more interview. This is going to be taken from their first ever album. And it is also this um, title track, which is titled, um, there's a lot of titles in there. Please don't sandblast my house. Take it away.
Nice. There you go. That is uh, 1,000 Violins on the track titled Please Don't Sand Blast My House, taken from their first mini EP or LP. Who knows? Anyway, this is David Eastall, the C86 show. This is going to be the next part of my interview with Colin Gregory. Um, when we talk about, well, I stand to talk about um, the amount of releases they did in such a short period of time and um, the fact that they must have been on such a creative flow or at least sitting on some cosmic ley line of creativity. Anyway, this is Colin's reply. Colin, take it away. You know something? It sounds funny, but we just weren't bothered. We just we we weren't bothered. We just did whatever came along. Do you want to do a record? We'll go, yeah, yeah, we'll do a record. Do you want to do another one? Yeah, yeah, why not? Do you want to do another one? Yeah. Some bloke in Germany wants to wants you to tour. Do you want to tour? Yeah, why not? Do we get free drink? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Count us in. We're there. <laughs> that was it. That was it. We weren't bothered. We just we were just being being kids playing music, drinking, smoking, until it ended. Yes. And and was there, was there a moment, can you sort of look back and go, was it kind of coming in the end, or was it the fact that, you know, that it was a bit of a surprise, and, and was there a definite moment that the band did their Ziggy Stardust moment? Well, the, the end came, David was a bit of a bully. He was lovely, but he was a bit of a bully. He bullied, bullied the singer, John, who was just a, a, a quiet pensive kind of lovely odd odd guy who had, had a strange childhood and he was very quiet and thoughtful david was an ex like rugby player who uh, did music because i did music i i wanted to do music so david was my friend yeah i'll do music as well you know you, you fall into these things don't you and uh, and so David was always trying to sort things out. I just, I just did music. I just recorded and, and made songs and just recorded and sat in my room recording. Uh, David spoke to Dan, arranged gigs. I showed up. John was a lovely guy who came and sang them. And uh, there's nothing much more to it than that. And uh, one, one day, one day, um, David said to John, "See ya." Bye. <laughs> get out of the van what well, that's it yeah that's it bog off and that was kind of it that was kind of it the rest of us were sat in the van uh, probably smoking <laughs> 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 just drove back to Sheffield uh, carry on doing something else then some uh, somebody else joined and uh, carry on right so nobody left so did you ever see John again no, he was a lovely guy, but, you know, he's uh, one of those really... You, you probably know some people like this. They're really quiet, slowly quiet, thoughtful. I, I like football. He didn't like football. And um, I, I like music. He likes music. And uh, I loved him. He was a great guy. I like most people. Most people are nice. But you have to make choices in life, don't you? Well, yes. You, know, and you can't look after everybody, and you probably didn't even want to be looked after anyway. No. He wanted to do his, and so, so you just can't move on, you know. It's like we should probably have never, uh, never met anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because obviously, you know, decades later, you know, compilations get put out by people either from. Yeah, there's this label called Fire Station in Germany. All Cherry Red Records is the other one that hoovers all these things up. And you obviously have had sort of compilations of all your stuff put out. I mean, is it the case? I know that David has died. He died, didn't he, in 92? Yeah. Which was, um, I guess that was a shock at the time, because that's kind of like the band had only just finished. Yeah, yeah. So, so I don't even, you know, the, the way the way it is for me, right? I don't have anything. To, I don't think about it. I, I've become I become some, something completely different. I don't think about that. Sounds like a, almost almost like a book that I read a long time ago. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a long long story and it's a, it's crazy. He was my best friend, and then we, uh, we fell out for some nonsense reason. We you always fall out. You're a bloody idiot. You you then you get to then you then you're friends again and. And uh, th that didn't happen for a while, and he, then he then he went and died. So, <laughs> what can you say? I, <laughs> and I never saw him again because he died. <laughs> and uh, it sounds sounds uh, it's all it's crazy because he was my my soul brother, and and he went. And uh, I know we would have made friends again, but we didn't. And uh, it's it's crazy. Yeah, because well, that that was because you broke up in eighty nine, and and he died in ninety two. So it was literally yeah. Some... You know, so you know something. You know far more about it than I do. I don't know anything. I, you know, 
I don't know anything. People, uh, there's a company called Cherry Red that you mentioned. They they released some of the the records, and and there's a Facebook page. I don't know anything about these things. I know that John from Cherry Red, occasional, uh, I'll be doing what I do, la la la, wandering around doing my things. And uh, oh, I got an email from John at Cherry Red, and he says, "Is it okay if I release this as a single?" I go, "Yeah." Nice one, dude. Bye. <laughs> do whatever you like. Do whatever you like. And so he does. Uh, sometimes he sends me a copy and I just stick it on, on in my on my wall of uh, CDs, whatever they're called. And great, and that's it. I mean, I, I must have done about, I don't know, a thousand cassettes of different songs over my time. And I, I had a shed in, in the garden and they all went a bit rotten because the shed's got a tree over it. And um, last year I thought, what am I going to do with all these tapes and all this music that I recorded? And I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll shovel them into the bin. So I poured them all on the floor, uh, got the shovel out and shoveled them all into the bin. <laughs> <laughs> and they're all gone now. They're all gone. But hey, that's what that's that's life, isn't it? So yeah, John follows me up every now and then and says, can I release something? Or somebody else says, this guy's going to release something. Do you want to do it? And I just go, yeah, do whatever you want. It's cool. It's all cool by me. So I don't even know. I don't. I don't remember much. People say to me, "Do you remember that?" And I go, "Oh yeah, 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 I remember that." But from day to day, I don't know. No, indeed, easily done, especially with age. I know. Twenty years time in a care home. Those nurses are going to have such fun listening to our stories. But anyway, if you want to know any um, or get any top tips of how to declutter, Colin Gregory is definitely your man because he doesn't mess around when it comes to uh, getting rid of stuff from the past. Right, I think we should play another track before uh, the next part of the interview. This is titled, and it's not the snappiest of titles, it is I Remember When Everybody Used to Ride Bikes. Now we all drive cars. And this is a particularly beautiful song, so listen to the lyrics. Exquisite lyrics indeed. That was 1,000 Violins with a track titled I Remember When Everybody Used to Ride Bikes, Now We All Drive Cars. Now this is going to be the third part of my interview with Colin Gregory from the band where I was talking about um, such admin, um, I love admin, um, the, discussing about sort of things like publishing and ownership and all that kind of groovy stuff. Um, and this was Colin's reply. Colin, where were you standing on all this um, delight that is um, administration. Do you know what? When we first, it was hilarious. When we first signed a publishing deal, 
Um, I remember, I, I do remember this, that we were down in London uh, staying at a friend's house and, uh, and we had a big chunk of, of, of dope, of resin, and somebody lost it and I was furious because we didn't have any dope but, and we were going to sign this contract. And I thought, well, I'm not signing that fucking contract until we find that dope right. <laughs> and I stormed off in a bad mood. And they go, oh, go, go and sign this publishing deal. And I'm not, I'm not fucking signing it. I'm not signing it. No way. So I stormed off to a pub and sulked. And uh, then somebody came and found me and said, look, we can't find the dope, but we've got some speed. Will you sign it? I went, yeah, all right. I'll sign it <laughs> if you give me the speed. So I had some speed and I signed it. And so and that's how I was not bothered. If if somebody got, wanted us to record a record, great. If somebody wanted us to sign and, get, and you got a couple of hundred pounds to buy some more dope or to get your hair cut and buy a shirt, great. <laughs> and that was what that was our life. The other, David was a bit more serious about it, trying to organise it. I wasn't bothered. Yes. And does that mean then that because most bands kind of laugh at this, you know, when they get their royalty check once a year, that's normally for about sixty pounds that they they either have to divide up or just give it to charity. So do you have that experience as well, where you go, oh blimey, I've just been given, you know, a tenner? Or yeah. Something? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's never stopped. It's great. It's great. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes you get you get a few hundred quid. It was great. The, the other week, my my, my wife. Uh, this was about six months ago. I got I got minus one pence for you ungrateful bastard, and she wanted to get it blown up and put in her frame <laughs> because you get a big list of what of what what you earned for what. And anyway, you and Grateful Bastard got minus one penny. <laughs> Excellent. And what's the single that gets the most then? Which is the one that often gives you the sort of at least nine, $9.99? Probably um, Like 1000 Violins, Halcyon Days. Yes. Uh, those ones, yeah. So you had this intense period. How did you then, just lastly, did you manage to then just, did you just say, that's it, that's the band, Ziggy Stardust, and instead of going into another world of music, you just gave it all up? Do you know what? When we finished, um, uh, David, David had, um, it, we were best friends, me and David, and it was our, we was best friends doing, about having a band together. And, um, he was he was an odd guy sometimes, um, you know. We loved each other loads, and and he, when he got his girlfriend, I, I had a girlfriend that I that I we went me and him went busking around Europe, uh, dressed as the Beatles when we were kids, and that's how I met my wife, and uh, she came to loads of gigs with us when we were when we were young as well, and he knew her really well, and she was like a rockabilly from Hamburg, and uh, he met a girl when we were doing gigs and she was a French girl and he, and he, uh, he started going up, going and staying with her in France, which was great. And uh, so in, in, when me and him used to live together, we eventually had four of us living together. And, uh, and, um, it, not everybody, we didn't really get on so well. You're just growing up a little bit. I get you just, we were just growing up and, um, we kind of grew apart a little bit. And, um, we, me, my girlfriend moved out, and uh, he was in France. This, I'm telling you the story exactly how it is, and you probably don't even want to hear it, but I'll just tell you. <laughs> we, we, he moved. Out, we, we were moving out to get a flat on our own, and he was in France. So I took the equipment from our house because I didn't want to leave it in the house on its own. I took it to our new flat just because so I didn't want to leave it in the house when it was nobody there. He came back, um, assumed I'd stolen it, which he was my best friend, sat, which I would never do, and, and proceeded to sue me. <laughs> <laughs> so it was just great. So he sued me, and I got a solicitor's letter saying he wants, David wants half the equipment. You owe him half the equipment, or you're being sued. So I thought, I think you can arsehole. Anyway, cut a long story short, uh, that went on for quite a while, and uh, I got a letter from my solicitor, or he called me and said, listen, David's leaving the country to live in France. You've got two options. You can either give him half the equipment or keep it off yourself. <laughs> so I, I just gave him half the equipment and said, you take half the equipment. I, don't, well, I never wanted to do that, and he just went. Uh, I, I dropped half off at the solicitor. He, he came, picked it up, and he went into the into the distance, and then we never never saw each other again, and he died. And that, that's how it, and I, because I was starting another band, I started, 
because there were some guys that liked the violins and they used to come around to the house going, hey, we like your band, can we cover your songs? Yeah, you can do what you want. And so I started a band with them, which he didn't like, he was jealous of. And so it just fell apart as things do, you know. Yes. But then you, this is the Dylans you formed. Yeah, yeah. So I just did that and I, I, I play bass because they didn't want to play bass. I sang because they didn't want to sing. Uh, same same philosophy again. Let's just let's just do. Let's just make some music for a laugh. Yeah, let's. So that's what we did. No, no. Same same principle again. I I wrote everything in the other band and I wrote everything in that band just because I used to love music and I just wanted to wanted to play my guitar and that was it. Yes, and then There's when. No miss- and so when that finished, was that the point where you said, that's it, I've had enough of the rock and roll life? Yeah, you know, I used, I used to chase everybody up to say, let's get some practice, let's practice. And when you're hanging around with a load of drug girls that can't get together, you're having to drive around and pick everybody up to, to, to practice the songs. You're thinking, and there's only you sat in front of a three-bar electric fire waiting for the, the drug girls to turn up to practice. Yes, I thought to myself, you know something, I don't know how much more of this I can take just sitting here writing and waiting for the guys to show up. So uh, I, I I just walked out, out of the practice room door and it was uh, in Sheffield and there were a load of like steel type guys there that, that made little wooden pattern things for steel moulds. And I always got on really well with them because they were lovely guys and it was there where we practiced. And I said, hey, hey, have you, have you got any jobs? And, the, and he went, oh, no, I haven't better be a fear or anything. I'll let you know. And uh, that was like a revelation. I thought, oh, that means I could get a job if I want. So uh, I went and got a local paper, looked in it, and it said, do you like rock and roll? Do you love, do you love music? <laughs> yeah. So I thought, that's me, that's me. So, so I went, went and saw this bloke, and he, said, and he sent me around Sheffield trying to flog two meals for the price of one. <laughs> <laughs> so I did that for a month, and then... Uh, I did my head in, so then I tried to sell Hoovers for a month. <laughs> did that for a month. That did my head in. It was mental. What a mental life that was. Hilarious. In, in these mad council hours, I was trying to flog these £1,000 Hoovers and having blokes coming out of the bath. You're trying to shag my wife. <laughs> Chasing me out of the door. Fucking little bastard. <laughs> Running down the road with a £1,000 Hoover. <laughs> <laughs> and after that, I thought, I've got to do something. Anyway, then I got a job at HMV. Uh, which obviously music, and I loved that. And I worked really, I'm a hard working guy, worked really hard, ended up becoming a manager of a shop and then a regional manager. I made loads of friends, lovely people involved in music, but selling it to people. It was great fun. And um, then I met the guy uh, who was one of my managers uh, who wanted to open a coffee shop, and I did that with him. That's what I do these days. A happy ending. And that is the last part of my interview with Colin Gregory from 1000 Violins. A big thank you for that. And that's the end of the show. This has been David Easter on the C86 Show. If you want to contact me, not trying to sound too desperate, you can via Facebook or Twitter. Just go to at C86 Show. I will be there. I'll leave you with one more track by the band. This is, this is titled, If I Were a Bullet, Then For Sure I'd Find a Way to Your Heart. I know, romance, it's always there. Anyway... Have a great week.
Yeah.